neurodiversity in and of itself, people think differently. That's, there's a diversity to that. Disability is diversity. And when we can start to kind of see all of that come together, yes, neurodiversity is a part of disability. Disability is a part of diversity. Like when we can see that that all comes together, then we make it more normalized. And when you normalize something, then you can enter into more safety. Welcome to the Disrupted Workforce, where we help courageous professionals explore, expand, and evolve in the future of work. Are you curious to understand how all these disruptions are changing how we work in our careers? Trying to self-assess and build an actionable plan to thrive in the future of work? Looking for research and insights from thought leaders to help you and your organization? Then this is the show for you and you found your tribe. I'm Alex Schwartz. And I'm Nate Thompson. And we are your hosts. TDW Tribe, we are excited to introduce you to Giselle Moda. She is a future of work expert with a fantastic background that is uniquely diverse and invaluable in this emerging future of work. She has an MBA in organizational design and change management, has been a college professor, a founder of multiple companies, a consultant for PwC, a principal of the future of work, and now is the chief of product inclusion, which is a super cool emergent title. And the bigger reason we want to have her on the show is she represents a unique side of the future work conversation. Specifically, she cares deeply about diversity and inclusion and disability inclusion in this increasingly digital world. Giselle is a TEDx speaker named to the top 100 future of work thought leaders list and the creator of the Nifty Collective. She continues to visit as a professor, sit on various boards, sings and plays multiple instruments. Good grief, Giselle. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you, Nate. I appreciate it. So that's a super impressive background. And honestly, I in my life, I'm amazed that you can do all that. Because <laughs> like, where do you get the time to do all those things? You know, it's funny. I think everybody does a little bit of something in their lives, right? We're not all one-minded, attract people, right? Yeah. We, all, we all have hobbies. We all have interests. We all squeeze it in somewhere, you know? So yeah, that's probably what it is. Especially because it's, you're passionate about it, right? You make that's time right. for those passions. Now, I have to admit, this is a, uh, a little backstory here. A good friend of ours, Natalie French, probably two months ago said, guys, you have to do a podcast on neurodiversity. You have to bring this conversation to the forefront. Not enough people are talking about it. Not enough people know what's going on. And it's been particularly hard in this remote hybrid world. So, Natalie, we have arrived. I would love to start a little bit about your background. Tell us about growing up and discovering what you initially felt was a limitation and how you turned that limitation into both your passion and a superpower. Thanks, Alex. I think uh, growing up, as far as that I can remember, I always had struggles. I always found uh, that I thought about things differently. Right. And so I didn't know at the time that that was neurodiversity, much less dyslexia or anything like that. I just did things backwards. I spelled backwards. I put numbers where letters would go and letters where numbers would go. In school, I would, you know, pay attention to what the teacher was saying. I thought I was absorbing everything, but come to find out, I would get back home, try to start doing my homework all that comprehension would go out the window. And I would even, I would swear by the fact that I was like, this is what she said. This is what I understood. And no, I would get things a little backwards. And when I would read, I would read backwards and see things backwards. And um, to this day, sometimes, you know, that's still, that's still a thing where sometimes I'll be reading a menu or be seeing something and, and, you know, flip it around in how I speak and how I used to speak at that time as well. Um, It actually took me a while to gain my speech. It was something that, I would use a lot of sounds when I would speak as a child. So, <laughs> so I, I assimilated very much with the Tasmanian devil. You remember oh Taz, the Looney awesome. <laughs> That was, that was like, I, I get you because that was me. I would like, you know, mumble things, sounds, you know, and then I would use words in between, but you know, also I would put my, my shoes on backwards. It would take me forever to learn where to put my foot inside of the socks. And so those are things that my mother, and particular teachers, Alex, to the, to the question that you asked, they leaned in and they noticed where I was struggling in certain areas until we found out that I had dyslexia, you know, and one of my teachers took keen interest in me 
She had me sit right next to her, right? I became the teacher's pet. She, she noticed that I was very good at pattern recognition. So I would win all these games that would like, she would put out to the class about like, finish this pattern or, or come up with how many words can you take out of this one word? You know, I was just being able to, to excel at those things as well as mathematics. And she would give me an incentive. Giselle, if you finish these things, then I'm going to give you an extra math worksheet because she knew that I love that or I'll let you do this puzzle and you'll get to get to the candy jar or all, all these things. And you know what? With time, I started to apply the principles of pattern recognition and understanding that things have sort of like a formula to them so that I learned how to read and comprehend what I was reading. I learned to apply that to writing because I hated to write before. And I learned that, well, when you construct writing, you start out with like three main ideas in your intro. Then you break down those main ideas and then you have to um, summarize those points. And I became a pro at writing. That took me through grad school, by the way. And I was like an, a golden key straight A student in grad school. Wow. How I got to where I am today, just from that place, I learned that not everyone learns the same way. I learned that even though if you have kind of a struggle, you it can become something that is actually a strength. And something that helps you stand out and something that helps you excel in different areas. So I applied that to myself and it helped me through school to graduate early, to go through to graduate you know, school and then finally start teaching and, and uh, helping other people learn even at work, um, which led me into artificial intelligence with algorithms and machine learning and uh, all kinds of other principles that I applied to the future of work data analytics, all kinds of things. And, and here I am today. So long story, very convoluted and, and strange path to where I've gotten to today, but it all really has this ramifications into my learning struggles as a child. Yeah. The perfect path, right? Because now you're taking that thing and giving that gift back in this digital future, which we're going to talk more about. But before we do um, this language, neurodiversity, uh, neurotypical kind of is relatively new in, in an open conversation. Some may not have heard it at all before. I'm pretty new to it. And so I've been exploring it. So could you talk to us more about that? And the reason that that really resonated for me, because I have a son who has an anaphylactic allergy. And when my wife and I go out to dinner, we have to spend a lot of time talking to the waiter. Sometimes we have to talk to the chef, you know, because they some people know about it and some people don't. And it's kind of this subculture world that if you're not in that world, probably don't know that language and what's going on or how dangerous it is. So can we just kind of demystify neurodiversity? What is it? What is it not? And kind of why is it so important in the workplace now? And I would venture to say, Nate, that I think that more people are neurodiverse than what they even realize. And I think it's more of a normal thing. Basically, the concept of being neurotypical means that there's a typical way in which you think, in which your cognition works, right? In which how you interact even socially, there's like a typical way that that looks like. And we call that neurotypical. Anything that deviates from that, whether you stem, right? Which means that you might have certain, what people might consider like a tick and, and some type of repetitive behavior of some sort. Maybe you think in a way like myself where you break down things into its patterns, or maybe you do see things in a backwards way, um, even like the way that your brain sees them. That's not typical, quote unquote. Um, that is atypical. So they, we call that neurodiverse or neurodivergent. And so people on the spectrum of autism who are, we know that people on the spectrum of autism are absolutely brilliant in most cases, especially, you know, um, or not especially, but even thinking of people with Osbergers, which I believe that, you know, some people like, uh, I think it was even, you know, the gentleman from Facebook and different people like celebrities and all kinds of people have been known to have some sort of spectrum. Um, Elon Musk. Yeah. Elon Musk. Right. And so we're looking at all of these, all these people who are brilliant and doing amazing things. We know um, the CEO, president of Virgin Atlantic, you know, is, is dyslexic. Um, so many people have so many different things that just make them see the world differently, think differently, even socialize a little bit differently. Sometimes it doesn't come across as typical behavior. And so that's what's referred to as neurodiverse. Okay. Thank you. Now, can I follow that with one other question, which is for a long time, decades, disability was something that people would go to Great Lakes to hide. Like, I, don't, I, I just don't feel comfortable disclosing this. I'm definitely not going to say this in the interview process. You know, I don't want to have bias or discrimination against me. Uh, and so 
it seems like more and more people, prominent people and everyday people are sharing. Is it now safe to reveal neurodiversity or any kind of disability? I don't know that it's safe uh, because there's still prejudice. There's still discrimination. There's still all of that. We see that in various uh, aspects of our interactions across the globe, right? Whether it's because of your gender, your race, ethnicity, your religion, whatever, we constantly see that. It's a human issue. So I think what's happened is that culturally speaking, and if you even probably look at the anthropology of humans and the sociology and how we interact with each other, like we have always defined what is acceptable, what is what is right, what is good, right? As being typical, quote unquote, like we were just talking about, as being your body has to look this certain way. That's why there's like body issues then and things like that. Or that's why there's colorism even within certain groups of, of races and ethnicities. You go to Africa or you go, you know, even within the African American community, there's colorism where you have certain people who are lighter skinned and some people who are darker skinned and you still there's still tensions within even that, apart from the whole white and black issue. The way somebody's hair is, uh, the texture of their hair, the the features of their face. And so imagine something like having a disability where you're where you may have you've been born missing a limb or you're in a wheelchair or, you know, your face uh, appears different because maybe you have some sort of different structure to your face, whatever that is. Right. Your speech. We often associate what is beautiful, what is smart, what is uh, attractive. Right. With certain characteristics. So I think that we, we have a ways to go still in today's society. But what has happened is that it's becoming more commonplace. So if anything has changed, it's more common, especially with new generations. Gen Z, for example, Gen Z here, or Z, as some people will say, are identifying a little bit more with dietary restrictions, with disabilities, with neural, neural differences, with different gender identities, with you name it. Like they're just more open and accepting of all of that. And so it's becoming more commonplace, I'd say. Agreed. 100%. I'm hearing it in conversations significantly more. And to your point, I'm hearing it in the younger generations. Yeah. And they're coming to the workforce. I want to pull a little bit further on that thread of safety and safety around the conversations that we can have. And I think one of the big challenges that we can all acknowledge is that diversity, equity, and inclusion is that people don't necessarily feel comfortable talking about these topics. So I I have have a two-part question for you, which is, First, does neurodiversity fall under the DEI umbrella? And second, how do you build a container around the topic of DEI at work to make it feel safe? Yes, great questions. I think, yes, neurodiversity falls within the container because neurodiversity in and of itself, we're talking about something of the cognition and in and of that self, people think differently. That's, there's a diversity to that. disability is diversity. And when we can start to kind of see all of that come together, yes, neurodiversity is a part of disability. Disability is a part of diversity. Like when we can see that that all comes together, then we make it more normalized. And when you normalize something, then you can enter into more safety. I want to go back for just a second. And when we were talking about differences, right, it's you don't feel safe if in the country that you live in, you know, you are ostracized because you are a refugee. And so you are seen as the outsider. And so you don't feel safe unless people open their doors to you, help you get opportunities, all of that. You don't feel safe if you're in a culture that, you know, upholds a certain gender over another and doesn't give them certain rights. And and same thing with the skin tone of somebody, right? So, the you know, safety comes from normalizing and accepting what makes people different. And so until we get to that point, I don't know that it's going to be absolutely safe. So today in the workplace, people are starting to lean more towards the acceptance of neurodiversity. So you're seeing Harvard Business Review, Ernest & Young, Deloitte, um, all these have done research reports and studies on the value of neurodiversity as a skill set in the workforce. You know, and I will say a caveat, we have to be very careful to not um, fetishize uh, and I use that word on purpose. Like we have to be very careful to not do that when it comes to people's neural differences or any other thing that makes them different. Because now all of a sudden people are talking about these things because they've done research, but it's like, Ooh, what are you saying? Oh, we need an autistic person now in our talent space because we, that's a coveted skill set and we need to have that. That's like, it's a little weird people. So yeah. how about we don't go that route and we go the route of 
we realize that what makes somebody different, even if they socialize differently, even if they approach a problem differently, there's actually something of value that we can, you know, gain and garner from, from that individual, right? And so we should actually leverage that. It's not like Tom Cruise recognizing that his autistic brother Dustin Hoffman was useful in the casino, right? <laughs> yes, thank you. <laughs> we don't want to do that, please. Yeah. It's a fine line. It's a fine line. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you're you're spot on. I love that call out because I do think that can get that's a slippery slope for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we saw it even with the African American individuals in the United States, all of a sudden, all these organizations were making all these pledges and commitments, and then they started to hire and make room for the first time um, leadership opportunities, even for the first time diversity officers, you know, and who was being hired for the most part, black women in the United States. Well, Well, in in the early days, it was, it was even worse than that. It was hiring white males to be the head of diversity. Yeah. And I mean, even everybody was just, just looking at that, like, uh, oh, oh no, uh, we just back off of that. So, Which is funny, you know, not to say that they can't be amazing at that, right? There's, there's, you know, cause I don't want there to be some odd concept in that either. If we go back to the times of the civil rights movement, who were some of the people who were doing some of the most, you know, pushing and supporting, they were white men. You know, so there's there's definitely room. There's people out there who are tremendous allies and supporters and probably could do amazing leading roles. However, we just need to make sure that, you know, in going back to even the neurodiversity concept there, let's make room for people who are different. Let's make room for people who usually have been the underrepresented. And that's where we should give room for these black women or Latinos or you know, Asian Pacific or whoever it is, or, you know, people with neurodiversities and all kinds of disabilities to take up spaces that they didn't normally have before. I think that's the, the, the beautiful pearl of wisdom there is, even if you are qualified, create a pathway, build the pipeline, invite other people to be involved. And that is the leadership, right? Rather than just holding that one position. And you're bridging us right into my next conversation, which was, there has been a lot of progress on the DEI front. And we are talking about things we never talked about before. Historically, DEI was more of a window dressing, kind of a CYA thing. Like, hey, we, we put a head in the head of DEI, but they don't have a budget and they don't have staff and they don't have tools and they're not tracking anything. But, but they're there. You know, we're still not there, but we are making really good progress. My question is, it seems like things shifted a lot in the pandemic. There's with significant events right? That took place on a national scale and everybody's watching this violence play out. And for the first time that I can remember, there was a call from employees across the country to their leadership teams, to their C-suites, to their boards to say, we have to talk about what's going on. We've got to, like you said, normalize this. We have to be able to speak about what we're seeing and it's happening to us as a country, as a people. And so I wanted to ask you, do you think that something unique happened in the pandemic? Have we taken a step forward in our companies now taking a more responsible, proactive, inclusive, transparent stance on DEI? This is always interesting because the issue with that was happening, especially during the pandemic and what was going on there, it's not new. For so many years already, you know, in the United States, especially, but also globally, people have, you know, marched, people have protested. There have been many people who have died or been murdered, you know, like similar to George Floyd over the past several years. And actually, I don't know if you realize this, but even after George Floyd, people kept on having certain, you know, scenarios like that. There was many people, many black uh, Americans were being killed still out beyond that, you know, so. What changed, I think what what changed was that there was this perfect storm that was created. So during a time where there was racial and social injustice that was happening in the United States at that time, also people started to see because it was recorded. And I think for the first time, that was a very big catalyst that happened that people saw. And I think uh, other times you would hear people say, well, you know, would that that person may have been, it must have been a justified situation because maybe they just did not comply or maybe there was a this. And there was a lot of kind of, you know, conjecture happening when we couldn't see. But now no one could say anything because we saw. For me, for the first time I saw, and I get a little choked up saying it even now, but I saw somebody's life 
leave them, you know, in front of my eyes watching that replay of the video. And I think that's such a traumatic situation that so many people saw and the evidence was there. And and it was just, what can you do with that? Merge that with then there's like the pandemic happening and there was so much socioeconomic gaps widening at that time where those who did not have much that gap widened so much between those who did have much. And so you saw people, especially during the pandemic, all of a sudden, you know, people with disabilities were not considered in in many cases to be essential, their medical care to be essential. So someone who might need a Botox injection because they have severe migraines or something like that, like chronic migraines, they couldn't get that. You know, people's equipment wasn't getting um, sent to people on time. People couldn't get uh, access to certain vaccinations on time. It it was a whole thing that was going on. And it then bled into the workplace because people were still having to work. People were expecting, being expected to give their best at work during a time where there was so much uncertainty and chaos going around. Yet the same people you're asking to give their best selves just saw somebody that looks like them die because they were running. You, you see? Yep. Um, yep. So these are things that they, I think um, certain people were wanting to have their voices heard because it was just too much. I think society got to a point where all these pressures became too much and uh, we started to hear it in the workplace. I, I just wanted to share that in my house, I have two young sons, three kids total, and having that conversation, the video was so heartbreaking. My wife couldn't watch it. I watched it. And, and my, you know, my kids are, you know, eight and 10, right. And having the conversation, not showing them the video, because that's something you can never forget. And, I know. and yeah. but just having the conversation about this is when, when, as you study and you learn about the history of our country, this is part of that. Right. And, and it's something that we have to reconcile and we have to make right. And so I just think it was so important. I know a lot of people get pissed about all the video cameras and that, I've heard a lot of people say, I'm so glad I grew up in an era when everything wasn't video. <laughs> mm-hmm. But now it's like, wow, we can finally see what's going on. So I hope, I hope, like you said, it takes us forward and we can finally start to talk about this stuff. And if you went through that, even just as a person who identifies, I think you, you said it earlier, like a, as a white man, you know, if you went through that and, and you imagine how it felt for you, imagine how that would have felt for a black man looking at someone else that looks like them get shot down or get, you know, the, the, the oxygen taken out of their body slowly just there. Right. And yeah. so I just wanted to say to the audience that's listening as well, like I spoke to many black men during that time and I just reached out to some friends of mine and I was like, how are you? And so many of them were saying how scared they were. It, it was just so traumatic. It took a toll. You probably don't even realize you're just interacting with people on a day-to-day basis and you don't realize how much, and I will speak on my, on my, to myself as well. Like for the first time ever, I noticed my skin for the first time ever. I had a very, I I can't even describe this. I try to explain it when I speak sometimes, but all of a sudden I had a keen awareness that the world got super small and tiny. And I felt my body, I I, I felt the skin. I felt the, the, my embodiment. I felt that. Um, and I and I realized that I, I am in walking in this casing, this body of a case that I'm walking in around in this world with this color skin and this gender identity with all the things that make me who I am without being asked to be that. You know, I am just this. I felt very exposed and afraid. And just being in this conversation like we are now, I mean, in my head, as we do this, there are times where I'm like, I wonder if it's OK for me to say that. I wonder if it's okay for me to explore this. I wonder if we can. And I think it's just so healthy for us to be in back and forth on this thing. It's healthy. Yes. And there's such grace in you reaching out to those black men to check in and say, hey, how are you doing now? And that moment that you just described, I had chills listening to you tell that story that for the first time in, in, in your existence, you felt that sense of being exposed and that sense of what is my identity in the world as I am perceived as opposed to this is me and I feel the freedom to express and and be and roam in the world in any way that I want. And that's a palpable difference. Mm -hmm. I would love to ask you, Giselle, what are people getting wrong 
about the DEI conversation now? I think we're getting wrong a few things, unfortunately, but uh, there's still hope. I'm very hopeful. I think that one of the things is the word association. We politicize diversity, equity, and inclusion. It's about humans, and we often over-politicize things. We're saying, don't throw this agenda and this philosophy upon me because I don't want to, you know, you know, <laughs> or whatever, whatever the case is. People have their arguments and their reasons as to why they think something is not important. But what we fail to realize is that what you might not find important is what identifies someone else and what somebody else kind of walks through in life as. And that's their, their personal identity, you know, what, what they hold close to them, right? And so, yeah, we have to kind of see that differently. That's one thing. The second thing is organizations um, often get wrong the concept that is extremely different in the United States versus globally. It kind of irks me a little bit when I hear that because although diversity, equity, and inclusion is different, it's seen as different. There's a lot of similarities across the globe. There is still racial and ethnic and, and all kinds of things, discrimination, no matter if you're talking about someone who is based in the United States because we have what's called African-Americans versus go to Italy and you still have Italians who are of African descent that are there. You have the diaspora of African slaves who were across the whole world. And some of us ended up in the Dominican Republic. Some of us ended up in Spain. Some of us ended up where you name it. We're all over the world. And it's not just that. It's the colorism that exists in India, in um, across indigenous communities. There's all of that. So it still exists because what we're talking about at its foundation is discriminating someone about the color of their skin. And that exists. And so even though it may be called race and ethnicity and how we look at it in the United States, it's still colorism. It's still discrimination um, outside uh, here as well. And same with gender identities, same with sexual orientations and identities, same with disability. According to the culture, disability will be seen as a stigma, as something that some cultures even see as you, it may be uh, a curse that somebody you know needs to be ostracized from their community because they have some kind of disability. Uh, and some cultures see it as, oh, like a, a pitiful thing. Whereas we all need to kind of get a little bit clearer on that. And I think the last thing I'll say about where we're getting it wrong is the traction that we think we've made. We have to really reassess that. So one of you made the point earlier about like, you know, there's certain groups that said, we're going to make these commitments about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And when they did, they just focused on women in leadership. Mm -hmm. And when you look at the women in leadership, it's still many white women in leadership. <laughs> the leadership oh, I, pipeline in general. It's yes. Still, yes. Or they're saying we're going to we're going to focus on inclusion and there's no efforts on people with disabilities. You know, there's still access accessibility issues. There's still all kinds of things. So I think if we're going to do it, we need to make sure that we do it the right way and include people who are different. You can't just say we're committing to diversity, equity, inclusion, and then you do promote an individual of a homogenous group who has always been in leadership and you just promote them into to take care of this other role and you forgot about others in your organization and their voices and their inputs. I, so I love that. And I love that it keeps coming back to exposure, awareness, understanding is how you begin to shift the mindset. I mean, I think about me, there's, yeah, I can look back at decades of my career and go, I knew nothing about that conversation. I grew up in a small town on the Eastern Plains of Colorado. That was not a conversation in my world. And so I had to sort of bump into life to kind of go, oh, when wake up to this moment. And, and I think, you know, and even now in, a 40, in my 40s, I'm still trying to learn and grow and read books and talk to people like you and experience it at work and try to do my own way of creating a path and being someone who can empower and support in that way. And I applaud you for that. I applaud you both for I'm not making saying it's space great. here. No, no, no. I mess I'm a just, lot of things up. But I'm, it's I'm okay. Trying. We we all do because I don't have it all right either. In fact, I was watching a documentary the other day where a gentleman who's an African-American was talking about the history of the United States. By the way, if you were brought up in a place like middle America, um, probably you weren't exposed to those things because of history. History redlined certain groups of uh, certain you know places. So your community where you probably were raised probably didn't have a lot of diversity to it because of history, because history made it so that um, certain people of color wouldn't be allowed to live in places where you probably grew up. So we have to be intentional. Yeah. Thank you for that. And, and, and that is just extends to the family, right? My wife and I are working really hard to try to instill that community, that understanding, that appreciation 
of diversity and inclusion with our kiddos, even in what schools we pick and what streets we live on and that sort of thing. And not making anything wrong, like you've said, just trying to move forward, trying to be better about this conversation. I want to bridge this to back to the workplace in a really cool way that I've actually never heard of before. Again, new things. This idea of what you're doing now in product inclusion, product development, product design, you know, um, client-centric development, all these kind of words have been thrown around forever, but product inclusion feels very new to me. How does that tie with DEI or does it? And kind of what is the mindset around that? Yeah, simply put, every organization that is set out to make a profit, they need the people in order to do that. So they need people to work in their organizations to help develop products and services and and do all the things, right? They want to always retain and recruit the best talent, as they say, and, and all of that. On the other side, on the consumer side, you want to reach as many people as you can to gain as much market share as possible. What I just said is about reaching as many people as possible, right? Reaching clients and reaching employees that will will make this uh, machine work, right? It will make it work and make it profitable, which is great. That's That's a concept of like being profitable in business. But what we fail to recognize sometimes is that those people that we're trying to reach out to and we want to be loyal customers and loyal employees, they are people of all kinds of differences. They have different genders, gender identities, different races and ethnicities, different religions and languages, you name it, right? And so we need to start making sure that we cater our systems for those people as well. If we want loyalty, if we want loyalty in dollars, you know, people to continue to buy from you. If you want loyalty in employees, people to continue to work for you and give their best. What are you doing to help, you know, recognize and value that individual? And that's where product inclusion comes to play for, from the piece of, and I'll give you some quick examples. So Google, uh, I love this example. Google came out with like a, a camera lens pixel, right? And mm. so with that one, you can do amazing things. Like there, you could do like some Photoshop things in it. You could do all that. But one of the most amazing features to me is that it's the first camera on a, on a mobile device like that that actually captures the correct hue of skin tone of an individual. And so before, when they were testing out different cameras, it would either lighten someone severely, you would look like kind of a ghost, <laughs> or in the case of like an, an, an NFL player who tweeted this, he was in a picture next to two white men. And he's like, I promise you that I am in the middle of this picture because you could not see him because oh my God. the photo darkened him so much that he just looked like a shadow with like two little red eyes that were sticking out. You, you had to like squint to see him. So there's a history to that as well. But Google came up with the idea to have photographers who specialize in capturing black skin and, and just people of color in general to test out the lens. And so they tested the product, they tested it, they went back and fixed it until they finally got to a a point where this lens is able to capture someone's true skin tone. And so it's the Google Pixel camera. In this way, this is one of the many examples where Google is creating more inclusive product features, Mm. right? And so think of the Band-Aid as well. Years ago, the Band-Aid was only in one color, uh, right? Skin tone. And so um, now it's available in different skin tones. Um, Think of, you know, you name it. There's so many different features. Microsoft has come up with many apps that help people who are blind or are deaf. And um, they're able to kind of navigate the world through artificial intelligence and machine learning apps that help, you know, you identify what's, what's around the corner. You know, you could walk on your own now. Um, with an app telling you and navigating you where to go uh, with some of these features. So yeah, the list goes on and on, but many organizations have started to look into how do we reach more people that we're not reaching today that are going to use our camera anyway, right? How do now we allow someone, you know, widen our market to people of different skin tones to want to choose our camera because it's actually going to, you know, pick them up in a photo as they are. That's really fantastic to hear. I wasn't aware of that. And I have been particularly aware of the conversation around how AI, especially with facial recognition, has been uh, responsible for a lot of unintended bias. It has been very unfortunate for use within the police department to kind of come full circle in the conversation there. 
And it's great to see that that Google is leading this because if you have a company like Google doing this and doing it well, it tells other big companies just how important this is from a leadership perspective. So now you say that and I will have to put out there full disclosure that if you look up a little bit, there was some black women who left Google some years ago because there was some issues uh, and things that I think, you know, we'd have to get to the bottom of what it was. But in general speaking, some people were exposing that some of the AI machine learning was actually creating certain bias and discrimination. And then all of a sudden, these these people were asked to leave. And so um, I remember. You know, that. Yeah, yeah. I, remember yeah. That. I do, too. Yeah. I read that. Well, we, you know, I'm not going to say one thing without saying the other because I just want to keep it real on your podcast. But I think that's a a real challenge that many organizations have to cope through and they have to think about. So while we're doing one thing amazing here, maybe we need to also figure out what we're doing on this other aspect. And I'm aware of that in my what I do. Um, So in my world, I focus on what we were talking about, product inclusion, but for um, kind of like human capital management. And and in my personal project, Nifty Collective, I focus on the same thing for the metaverse and Web3 as it pertains to especially people with disabilities. So that's a whole nother probably topic for another day, but, you know, going down that in detail. I, I believe it or not, we do have a question that we'd love to ask about that uh, directly related. So you founded Verse D, an inclusive and strategic ventures group, and you also created, as you just mentioned, the Nifty Collective. Yes. And that's a project with a mission to bring disability and inclusion into Web3 and the metaverse, which is super cool. And from your website, uh, it notes the Nifty Collective is an evolving project to ensure that people of diverse representation are included, represented and able to access Web3 and the metaverse. At Nifty Collective, we believe that no one should be left behind as the pace of technology accelerates. So what is the genesis for the Nifty Collective? Who are you engaging with? What are the practical applications given that this space is so new? So I'll I'll start off. I'm going to do the, the little backwards. I'm going to apply some dyslexia to answering your question. Yes. So, <laughs> I will say that um, one of the things that we're doing right now, I just spoke recently with at an Ericsson conference, Ericsson, a major technology company. They brought together many people. I was on stage with like Microsoft and um, Amazon and, and a few others and the president and CEO of Ericsson um, USA. And I was sitting there and I was as they, everyone is talking about, you know, building these virtual spaces where you can go to concerts, where you can work, where you can play, where you can go shopping, um, where you can do all these things in the metaverse. That's a virtual space where you can be an avatar and you can enter into these experiences, whether on a mobile device or it could be with VR goggles or all kinds of things. So think about the things you could do in regular life, even go to the bank, uh, even go to the embassy for Barbados. They now have a metaverse. But now you can do those things in virtual spaces. Everyone's talking about what it takes, you know, the technology stack, the, uh, you know, how to even be sustainable with that. You know, how to think about the the environments when you're thinking about creating all these things. Great conversations. I'm the only one who's talked about inclusion in this space. Mm. The only one who said, well, what about, you know, the impacts of people with disabilities? Can they access these spaces? What do we need to do to design for the for that to happen? You know, all kinds of things. So what I'm doing um, is basically with the project, we've created these avatars of real people with disabilities. Some of them are Paralympians, actors, speakers, like they're doing amazing things from around the world. These avatars are similar to like a voxelated 3D type of um, character that you might find like mm, sandbox, Minecraft, like those kind of mm-hmm. things. Um, a bit. Yeah, yeah, that kind of thing. But with a little twist of more 3D to it. Um, so they're kind of a, a, a hybrid. And so these characters, um, we created them with the intention of allowing people who you know, have disabilities to be seen in these virtual spaces, to be included in these virtual spaces. And we created like NFTs out of them, non-fungible tokens um, that we gifted to those who we were inspired by to make their characters. We created AR experiences and we continue to create games, which we'll, we have a game that's in production for the Sandbox to come out early next year. We create an AR portal um, experience, like all kinds of things where you can engage with these characters and learn about people with disabilities. Now, why I did all of this? (laughs) One, because what you read a moment ago, Alex, this is a space of emerging technology that uses artificial intelligence, that uses AR, augmented reality, mixed reality, virtual reality. And I'm like, 
Where, what about people with disabilities? So it was just plain and simple. I, I thought you were going to say you did all this because you finished Breaking Bad and you had nothing <laughs> left to binge watch. <laughs> that too. Not Breaking Bad, maybe another binge show, but yeah. You know what? You know what's funny? Well, so the personal thing, back to kind of like the genesis of our conversation, the, it's getting a little serious for a second. The past couple of years, the, the past three, two to three years with the pandemic and all the racial injustice that was happening in the world, like, I had a lot of frustration about what was happening, right? Um, again, I expressed to you how I felt personally about, you know, myself and what, you know, my place and all, all the things, you know, and I looked back and at the time I was just focused on, you know, the future of work and speaking about that. And I was constantly talking to large organizations in the C-suite about how do you use artificial intelligence and data analytics and automation to improve your processes? Like I had that thing. I was, you know, I was, I had it on automatic. I was, you know, really good at that and helping organizations to, to think about the future and all that. But to me, the future needed to be inclusive. And that's where I pumped the brakes. And I asked myself the question, like, how am I using my time? How am I using my skill set? How am I using my education? What am I doing to help impact the world in a different way? Other than just basically helping make a sale or helping an organization be more productive and efficient in what they're doing. Yeah. So that's where this project came from, from a very personal place of refocusing my energy, my frustrated and hurt and angry and sad and afraid energy to saying, how can I impact something that's bigger than me that might, I might start small and it might snowball into something amazing. And it has been um, big organizations have been listening, leaning in, asking questions. How can we be more accessible? How can we design with people with disabilities in mind? And there I am at the table. In fact, I'll share this real quick. I just got invited to sit on with NASA to bring that perspective into some of the work that they're doing as well. So it's just, it's been such an amazing thing that just started with a refocusing of energy. Wow. That is such a beautiful answer and so much better than I ran out of TV shows to watch. I can't even tell you. <laughs> That's amazing. Thank you. And, and what a, what a beautiful place to, to show up from and the whole process of how you got kind of recentered on, Hey, I'm doing this thing that's really helpful and really valuable, but is it making the impact that I want to make this, this, this thing that I'm doing is easy. Let me try to do something hard. That's truly coming from my heart and that can make a difference in the world in a way that feels aligned to how I want to show up. That's why, that's why we wanted to have you on the show, Giselle. And to that point, Alex, Giselle, um, I could be really wrong about this and I'm willing to be it's hard to find someone like you mm. to have this conversation, an Afro-Latina woman of color who's really passionate about this space, who is bringing a really unique perspective around inclusion. It's so, I, th I think there's an insight in there, which is Alex and I look for people who are amazing, who are holding this conversation, but like you said, not in a typical way. Not the standard fare about tech's so great, let's innovate, yay us. There's this whole other humanity thing, this deeply human experience that people are being fundamentally impacted by this. And I think the insight for, that you just gave is there are not enough people like you having this conversation. It's super hard for us to find them. Am I wrong in that? There are groups of people that are out there and they congregate in certain spaces. So we, for example, Afrotech just happened. It's an amazing conference that happens that brings together amazing people of color. And I know that they care about these things and I know that they're making efforts and making progress in some of the work that they do. I think that they're gathering in particular spaces that I don't know that it's launching out outside of those spaces, okay. like where I expose myself into. So I think they exist. There's amazing people out there. I know that there are that are doing wonderful work. I just don't know one if they are in forums where they expose themselves to be the only, you understand what I'm saying? Like, yep. I think more intentionality needs to happen where some of those great voices need to show up in some of those spaces, even if they're the only person in the room um, and be exposed in that way. So I don't know. I don't know. I would say probably link up with more of those groups because there's amazing people out there um, that, yeah. And I just want to point out, Giselle, that you're still the only one that got asked by NASA to go to outer space. That's freaking <laughs> I did not get asked to go to outer space. <laughs> oh, that's we'll coming. Go with, we'll go with that. We'll go with that. We'll that's coming. With that. You're going to outer space, too. <laughs> oh, goodness. 
Let's bring this back to belongings. A, a through line of everything we've been talking about is something that you specialize in from that really unique seat. You're fostering belonging, which is this wildly important word that we're all waking up to is people are hungry for belonging, particularly after the pandemic and being isolated and feeling uh, marginalized and feeling like you said you were feeling, I felt scared, right? That thing. And so you've, you've really built a, a beautiful passion around this thing called belonging. And I want to ask a question about it as it relates to the workplace. We used to have in-person experiences. It used to be on campus. It used to be physical. And now we're entering an era where all indicators are showing we're going to be more and more digital going forward. Mm -hmm. And it's not just a, was there a pandemic? Now there's this whole financial thing behind it of, it makes a lot of sense to not have as much office space in some cases. It makes a lot of sense to give people more flexibility from a, from a uh, employee experience perspective. So what is that going to do to belonging? Because a lot of people are finding belonging somewhere else, which is it's kind of causing chaos within the corporate culture. Uh, what, what do you think about that? I think I'd argue that even though people had physical gatherings before in person, it doesn't mean that people felt a sense of belonging just because they were gathering in physical spaces together. In fact, there would be gatherings where I'm sure people wouldn't feel like they really did belong even in work. They, they would still find their cliques. They would still find the people, you know, the, uh, the aspects or they probably not participate in some cases. And I wonder, you know, if now it forces us to create more intentionality around uh, a culture of belonging and how do you reach out to people? How do you have more intentional conversations and how do you find out what's on somebody's mind and um, making space for people to bring their truth and full selves to the workplace if they so desire, you know, one of the examples I told you before about like virtual spaces and even um, uh, physical spaces. Now more organizations are thinking about like creating spaces where people can go and pray no matter what their religion is, they can have like a quiet space. If you're, you know, if you follow, you know, Muslim religion or a Christian religion or Judaism, if you need a particular moment that you need to, to have to pray or, or do your ritual or do something, more offices are creating that or they're creating spaces virtually where you're allowed to take some time and, and focus on those areas. So that in and of itself creates like a sense of, wow, I belong here because they're making space for me on something that matters to me. And same thing with like creating spaces for hard conversations. You said it before. Sometimes you don't even know what to say. You don't know how to ask something because you're afraid that like, you know, you by, I mean, you, the, the universal you is afraid of like saying the wrong thing. I think if organizations create more of that intentionality, even in their tools, even in their products of helping a manager with what kinds of questions to ask or, hey, this, this trigger event happened in the world that affects this certain community and this certain community is represented on your team. These are the questions you should be asking and creating space for. If that happens, people feel a sense of belonging. Wow, I belong here. They cared enough to ask me. And so I think people are now are feeling like, like to your point, they're creating their own senses of belonging in other places. And I'll share with you quickly. There's this touring group called Daybreak. Um, I went to an event uh, not long ago where they gather together in a space and they let the sun rise and people are just dancing in this space. And it's like there's an MC and DJs and like music, children, people of all races, people of all genders, gender identities, people of all backgrounds were there together just dancing in a space. It was like they rented a pub, they rent a public space around the world and they gather people to do that kind of thing. Organizations can be more intentional about if you're gathering. If you're going to create some sort of something where people can get together, make it as open and inclusive as possible so that people feel like they belong as well. I love that. And even to the point of your product inclusion of, I was just thinking forms, you know, how uh, census and anything you sign up for asks you your gender. Yep. And that when you fill out that form, is there a space to have uh, gender fluidity? Is there a space to, to put in pronouns? And that's where even that creates belonging in a really interesting way. I agree. I agree. That's some of the work that I'm focusing on in my day job. Absolutely. Yes. So this may be a little bit more related to your day job and to your past focus, but it's certainly near and dear to us, which is what are the top three things that you're most excited about in the future of work? 
So I'm most excited, first of all, absolutely about an inclusive future of work. And that's that's my tagline. That's what I talk about all the time, because to me, if the future doesn't include me, if it doesn't include different types of people and different representation, it's not a future that I want to be a part of. So to me, inclusion is very important in how we design the workplace, the work that we're doing and how we define the workforce. We need to think about that and consider allowing people the option to show up as they are. Outside of my day job, what I'm excited about is the project work. And it points to the opportunity for technology as it evolves to also take along people with it. Uh, and I'm excited about that. So I, I love that, you know, AI and machine learning and data analytics and all these things are growing and there's more opportunities to do good with it because there's definitely opportunities to do harm. We've heard all the crazy stories, right? And I think that it's very important for us to, uh, I think an exciting part in conjunction with like what's possible with technology is to ensure that we're also managing it. And I'm excited for that possibility. I'm excited to bring forth people who may have studied sociology, um, who may have studied law and all, all kinds of things to be a part of emerging tech in a way that they didn't think that ooh, my career was going to take me to think about the ethics of artificial intelligence. Oh, I didn't know that legally that my career was going to take me that, that path or sociologist. I didn't know that I was going to be sitting here thinking about the implications of data or automation on cultures and societies and how I can then consult an organization and talk to them about, you know, how people think and how cultures are and how that needs to be included in technology development. So I'm excited for the potential for new job creations, new roles, new um paths and potentials that we may have never connected those dots before, but it's here. Uh, And then I guess the third thing I'm excited about, because we said three, I am excited about the potential for more accessibility within within, um, technology as well in the future of work in general. I think there's going to be, we're going to see more people with neurodiversities and disabilities in general working and being very vocal about hey, I'm a product engineer and, you know, I'm a blind product engineer. And this is, you know, like we'll see that more normalized and I'm excited for that. Yeah. Unlocking that whole side of the workforce, right? And normalizing, that's fantastic. Uh, Can I just ask you this question? Because you're so involved in this space. And Alex and I think about a lot. We're huge fans of technology. We're huge fans of how it's empowered and enabled uh, and connected the world. It's a universal language of our planet in many ways. Meta is really struggling and you, you have an angle on that. And I think there's this whole sort of push pull. Uh, there's a lot of uh, a narrative around the downsides of being even more plugged into technology. And then, you know, there is this huge potential there. Do you think the metaverse is going to be sticky or is it kind of the latest failed installation of virtual reality and that sort of thing? <laughs> Okay, you said two things. You said one is a company, one is Meta, yeah. technology. So let's let's discuss the company for a second. I think the company has been struggling for a long time in different areas, and until they fix some of those foundational pieces, they they're just going to keep kind of bringing some of those issues forward. And so, and then that applies to any organization. I think that you know, go back and make sure you're doing things ethically, responsibly, um, inclusively. You know, and then and then everything else can follow. So that's what I'll say about that. I mean, we have the problem that Mark Zuckerberg is basically a young version of Mr. Burns in The Simpsons. I mean, that's basically who he's become. No comment. <laughs> this one is trying to give me trouble over here. <laughs> I'm not coming. I'm okay. going to leave that one on you, Alex. Okay. okay. I'll so, own it. <laughs> I will say about the metaverse is a space that has potential even um, in doing the numbers. People are seeing that it's a multi-billion dollar industry. Uh, It's going to continue to grow within the next few years. I mentioned it before, kind of alluded to it, but banks, JP Morgan and Chase, governments, the government of Barbados uh, created an embassy, big brands, uh, you name it, Nike, Gucci, Prada, like, you know, Subway. uh, Everyone has been kind of flocking to create virtual experiences in what's called the metaverse. And people, consumers, you know, flock to it because it's it's new, it's creative, it's a place where you can play, where you can do different things. So you don't just have to like shop online on a regular e-commerce. Now you can try things on, like what you would have done with IKEA that you can basically do, you know, AR and put your couch in your living room and test it on for size. 
you could do the same thing now in, in a metaverse space. And you know, for years, a lot of folks were trying to figure out how to do that with like a magic mirror in store or with your online yeah. shopping experience. So I do think you're exactly right that that's a viable use case. And we're also seeing a proliferation of, of virtual goods from brands, as you mentioned as well. Exactly. So it's here to stay. I think it's here to stay. I think we're going to continue to see as long as people can come up with more use cases, we're going to continue to see, see it continue to develop. And as you said, let's keep it healthy, right? Let's find a way to do this in an inclusive way that is a generative, that's empowering human beings instead of causing a host of, of issues. And I know there's growing pains. Anything new has growing pains. I get all that. Yeah. Okay. Let's get personal for this question. As have you we not been getting personal this whole entire oh, we have. We have. But this one is specifically about your background and your family, your Dominican background, right? The fa- your family immigrated. And I, there has to be a tie between your passion and that experience. What is the link for you between, hey, this is how I came to be in the United States. This is our family background. And, and now this is why I'm so passionate about this work. Yeah, simply put, identity. That's what it is, identity. And uh, everyone has identity. And I think that it often can get lost when we're trying to pursue some sort of quote unquote, you know, American dream or trying to pursue corporate success, quote unquote, and we're trying to do that. We often think that we have to assimilate to become a certain way. And I don't think it only has to do with people like myself who, you know, have the immigration story and all kinds of things like that. I think it's also probably within communities like your own where you, right. Like, and I'm not speaking for you, but I wonder sometimes if it's like, you see what an ideal looks like ideal, like ideally I should be like this. I should navigate like this. I need to like these things. I need to have my, you know, perspective like this to be the in, to be in and to, to make it, to be successful. And for me, I grew up with, duality of identity. I grew up, I probably even with more than duality of identity, because I'll explain it real quick. So I grew up very Latina. And even to this point, I am, that is, encompasses much of my identity. Um, How the music I listen to, how I navigate the world, the things I find funny, like all the things are very entrenched in my Dominican culture. Now, you wouldn't know that having probably just kind of, you know, come upon me or looked at me or kind of, you know, you would people, most people would say she's an African-American woman in the United States. And so I also grew up with sort of that identity because it's the identity that people saw of me. And so I lived in a neighborhood that was predominantly African-American and then having to navigate very white populated uh, environments where it was like, I was in gifted classes after I, you know, learned how to deal with dys- dyslexia and all kinds of things. Like I was in gifted and honors, advanced, and a lot of the people around me who came from money, you know, came came from a social class, came from a, a lot of them from a homogenous kind of racial and ethnic group. Um, it was that in Asian communities around me for the most part. And I had to navigate as the only in those spaces. So I guess um, just to kind of sum it up, experiencing the world from different lenses, it has given me an appreciation for diversity, it's given me an appreciation for um, others, but also myself. And I want to show up as myself wherever I am. And I want to bring that and highlight that and give other people the chance to do the same thing. And so if that means that that's me helping with product inclusion so that generations to come can see themselves as they are in the workforce and so that we empower organizations to be more inclusive, then so be it. And if it means that I'm helping with a project uh, of my own where I'm, you know, creating these spaces where technology is going to continue to advance, but I want all people to be seen in that, then so be it. And so anything I can do, it brings me to kind of where I am today, but it's all based on my identity. And that gives you your superpower. I mean, it's wonderful that you've done all the things you've done in the corporate perspective, but the way that you bridge it to your past your, what you used to see as a challenge that is now your superpower. And then you connect that to all the other people who are in need of that voice of someone to represent them. And then you create the belonging, like you're a model for how to do this right, for how to um, do something really special at a time when it's needed most. I'm learning along the way. So I appreciate that, that comment, but I'm definitely continuing to learn along the way. <laughs> Ditto. Ditto. We're going to take you into a speed round, Giselle. Oh, you boy, have here we go. 30 seconds, roughly, 
to answer any of these questions or all of these questions. And the first one, we want to know about you're a singer and a, a, a musician. What instruments do you play? Well, I play guitar, piano, uh, and some, anything you kind of give me in my hand, I'm going to try to play, but guitar, piano, and some percussion. Wow. So we hear and we learn today that you are extraordinary at pattern recognition. What are some surprising ways that this gift helps you in your day-to-day life? Uh, I'm really good at puzzles. I'm really good at math. So day-to-day, like, put some in front of me and I'm, I'm, you know, good on that. And I think socially speaking, I'm really perceptive of people. And so I pick up on nuances. This is a secret. Nobody probably heard this. This is the first time I'm exposing this. So I, I pick up on nuances of people and I kind of like, you know, I tie things together. So I'll just leave that oh, wait, alone. No, there. no, no. Now That's you have it. to, That's you it. have to reveal something about me or Alex or both of us. What have you picked up on? <laughs> oh my gosh. No, that's too much. Um, no, you know, just I'll just have to end up giving you some kudos here. But I do pick up on without you having said it before, I did pick up from you, Nate, that you do seem to to be of an individual who was raised in a certain environment, but you're really trying to step away from even what you probably were cultivated into and try to form some kind of new newness. And so I noticed that from you. So I just wanted to tell you that from without you even having said that, I could I could see that. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. It's been a, just like you said, it's been a, I mean, a long pursuit for me to explore and expand and and really come to appreciate the world and people and culture in in a new way. And and that doesn't take away from my upbringing was fantastic, but it was, I just didn't get exposed to the world like a lot of people do. And I I think it's um, something that I'm trying to, I will work on for the rest of my life. And I really hope that I can shine that light for my kids and, and others. So thank you. You're doing it, my friend. You are doing I'm trying, it. I'm trying. Mm-hmm. Um, w- Alex, I'll what? tell you later. Oh, no, no, no. Go. No, I, I feel like I'm having like my Jack Nicholson moment. You can't handle the truth. <laughs> I'm sorry, dude. Oh, my goodness. Uh, yeah, we'll talk later, Alex. We'll Go talk ahead. later. We'll talk later. All right, Nate, jump ahead. What's One next? practical way that anyone can develop a more inclusive mindset. And when I say practical, I'm talking about the easiest of the easy. What can somebody do? Make a friend and somebody that's different from your group. That's it. Invite somebody to dinner to your house that's different from you and your group. Get out of your bubble. I love it. What advice would you give to Nate and I as 40-something white boys to be better leaders and human beings in an increasingly diverse workforce and world? Oh my gosh, this is, um, let's just continue to, to lean into the truth and be ever, ever discovering of truth. And truth is history. Truth is looking back beyond the history that you were taught in school that leaves out a lot of pieces of information. Um, like, you know, history books don't teach about the Tulsa, Oklahoma issues that happened there where basically many, many people of African American descent who were doing amazing. It was a Tulsa, Oklahoma massacre. They were they were people who were doing so well in in government and in their businesses and all these kind of things. And one day from the next, certain uh, people of that community, white people of the community, rented planes and they threw fire down on the buildings and the homes that uh, and buried all of those thousands of bodies under the ground to not be found and not be seen. It's like a whole part of where is that in our history books? So I, I would say lean into that. If you want to really change today, you have to re- re- we have to reconcile with the past. And in history, that conversation is very alive in our home, even with the kids. We've been having conversations about different versions of history and and talking about that, reading books about that, watching shows about that and trying to, uh, like you said, piece it together. Uh, Bring this back to the core conversation to really honor this idea of neurodiversity with a simple resource or two. If someone wants to learn more about neurodiversity just so they can ramp up, be better, be a better ally, a supporter, a mentor, whatever. How, where would someone start to explore and kind of get better with that? For sure. I think you know, one of the cool pieces I'll say just for a visual, I think it's important for people to see what that looks like. So I'm just going to be very, I'm going to give some practical ones. I'm going to say Netflix has an awesome show called Love on the Spectrum. And mm. go watch that show and see how different neurodiversities show up and realize that what that looks like, oh, this is somebody with Asperger's, this is somebody with autism and look how they function. Like, or, or see people even, you know, with Down syndrome who are 
who are having jobs and they're driving and they're doing all kinds of things. Like, I wonder if we, we associate that. So I would say visually speaking, look at that, look on YouTube, look at different people and the things that they're doing. So I'd, I'd invite you to take a look, first of all. And second of all, um, I mentioned it before, Harvard Business Review, uh, Ernest & Young, et cetera, they came out with really good research reports around neurodiversity. I'd welcome you to just kind of check those out. Awesome. Thank you. Giselle, thank you so much. Thank you for being you. Thank you for this raw and real conversation. When we first chatted about having you, you join us for an interview, we talked about getting to the real, real. And I felt like we, we absolutely did that today. And we're, we're led by you and your candor and your humility and your truth. And it's no surprise to me that, you know, NASA wants to send you to outer space. You were just, <laughs> you were just amazing, but seriously, uh, you know, you're making a huge impact and a huge contribution and it shows. And, uh, we can't wait for people to listen to this episode and, and get to know you and your work and your mission a little bit better. Yeah. And thanks to you for making the space. You could have been talking about anything else, but you chose to create this space for me and for this kind of conversation. So thank you. Where can people find you? What's the best way for people to connect with you and to become more familiar with your work? Um, LinkedIn. LinkedIn. I'm on there as Giselle Mota. And you can probably find me on Instagram as well as I'm Giselle Mota. Thank you for joining us on this journey. In a world where attention is scarce and content is abundant, it means a lot. To learn more about this episode, go to disruptedwork.com forward slash podcast, where you can find show notes and key details about the episode, our guests, and how to connect with us. Our website also contains additional resources for learning, including our future work mindset model and action plan. The best way you can support the disrupted workforce is to subscribe to our show, on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. To help others thrive in the future work, spread the word by rating and reviewing the podcast and sharing your favorite episodes with the people you care about. Disrupt yourself to unlock your future.